I remember in, as a young person in school, particularly this time of year, when the school year is beginning to wind down, we would often have um, a week or a, a couple days of class that we would set aside to watch a movie. Now, I thought that was for our benefit. As I've gotten older, I realized that was probably just the teacher needed to break. Um, but either way, it was a win-win. Uh, at least our perspective, um, but inevitably you would get about halfway through the movie and the plot would really just begin developing and then the bell would ring and she would shut the VCR off, whatever that is to young people, and um, and then we would come back the next week and pick it up where you left off and you're trying to remember, okay, why? what's going on here? Well, last week the bell rang right when we had the king of Israel and the king of Judah together in Jezreel and and Jehoram the king of Israel is recovering some from some battle wounds that he he uh, he had from fighting against Syria and so he is there and the king of Judah uh, Ahaziah is there keeping him company he has traveled to keep uh, Jehoram company in Jezreel and so God God's providence brings them together but we're left wondering why 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 are they here together and 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 so this week, this week we kind of learn the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. We get to push play again and see what is about to unfold. Now, if you thought the scenes last week were brutal and bloody, we're talking, someone said something right before the service, or please tell me you're not talking about donkey heads and pigeon poop today. Uh, I, I said, it's, it's worse. It's, it's darker. If you thought last week was, was, was brutal, I mean, the passage this week look, makes last week's text look like the kind of the ballroom scene of Cinderella. Um, it, it is a dark passage. If you if you were to make a modern film about this episode in Israel's history, I don't think you could make it anything less than rated R. Now, my preaching will be very PG today, so don't worry, parents. Don't ex- rush to the doors. Um, but the section is very is very gruesome. It really is. God raises up a, a man of zeal, Jehu, to be king over Israel. And he purges, violently purges Israel of Baal worship and of all of Ahab's household. He exterminates all of Ahab's descendants in fulfilling Elijah's prophecy. Now, unfortunately, as we'll see, some of Jehu's killings really seem to go beyond reform and become atrocities. But they're all recorded for us in gruesome detail. And we will, we will look at these. Now, just a couple of questions I want to ask and answer real quick before we really get into the meat of the section. The first question is this, and it's in your outline there. Why study hard passages of Scripture like this? Now, this is not a hard passage to interpret. It's, a, it's just, as I said in the, in the little paragraph, it's a hard passage to stomach. Now, why, why bother with this kind of story? Why bother with a book like Second Kings where we have, week after week, we have these kinds of stories? Isn't it kind of counterproductive to what we're trying to do as a church and reaching our community for the gospel and building one another up? How in the world does this fit? Well, just a couple quick answers to that. One I've alluded to even in my prayer. Because, this, because whatever God says is important. 
And this is a part of that all scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, that is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so, because God says it's, it's, it's important to us, we need to, it needs to be important, and we need to preach it, and we need to teach it, and read it. Secondly, along these lines, because God builds up His church by His eternal word. Not by trendy gimmicks. And so, this gruesome text, even like this, they're not counterproductive to the growth of the church. They're essential to the growth of the church because God has shown Himself in His multifaceted character throughout, the, throughout uh, Scripture. And we need to know what God has revealed about Himself if we're going to, to grow both internally as followers of Jesus Christ and even externally as, as witnesses of His and see the gospel take root in our community and the world. And then third, because people really want to know what these passages say and mean. I, I know they're, they're of a, the generation before, the, the, the baby boomers and the generation Xers, there was a a trend to to have everything slick and everything um, uh, kind of uh, the salesmanship of in the church of of twenty years ago that that's gone in this millennial generation they they don't want to be sold to they they want substance and more than style and so I think we're we're it's it would be foolish of us to just gloss over passages like this and and just preach some kind of moralistic uh, message. They, they want to know what the Bible teaches. I mean, millennial believers, and many of you are. And so I think for that reason it's important. Fourth, and we could give many other reasons, but because we want to know how to answer skeptics who use passages like this and, and abuse passages like this to, to try and dismantle the faith. How do you answer the professor who cites this text and then refers to Richard Dawkins, who calls the God of the Old Testament a moral monster. How, how do you answer that? What do you, what do, you do? Should we, be, should we be embarrassed by texts like these? Well, I hope that as we work our way through, you'll, you'll have a sense of how to answer those kinds of objections. And the second question I want to ask is this, is why would God take such radical measures to deal with sin? And what I'm getting to here is really the context. What is going on that God would have such a severe response to raise up a man like Jehu to bring such a violent judgment upon Israel, and particularly Israel's leaders? What was going on that made it so necessary? Well, to understand this story, you need to understand the story of King Ahab. Now, if you've been with us through the fall, we've worked our way through First Kings, now we're in Second Kings. And so some of this may come back to you. If you're newer to the church, then just let me catch you up real quickly. Ahab was the most wicked king of Israel. And he married a foreign wife, Jezebel, who brought into the marriage and into the nation, not, not money, but idolatry. She was a worshiper of Baal. And she brought all of the attached perversions that came with uh, Baal worship. And so, and she was, she was an aggressive we would say, quote, evangelist for Baal, evangelist by force. And so she slaughtered the prophets of God who preached against Baal and forced uh, people to worship this false god. And so that's, that's some of the background. Now, one particular episode from Ahab's 
life and reign is, is especially important for us to know for in light of this text. And it's a story of, Naboth, of Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings chapter 21. If you remember this episode, Ahab looked over the wall and he really wanted this guy Naboth's vineyard. It was right next to the to his 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 palace, and he just was greedy for to have this vineyard, envious of this little scrap of land. He wanted to make a garden out of it, and so Naboth, though he Ahab goes to him, has this great offer. He says, "I tell you what, I'll buy this and I'll set you up with an even better piece of land for a, a better vineyard, and and it'll be more fruitful." Uh, but he refuses to sell to Ahab because it's not his land to sell. That was the basis of it. Or to trade. It was God's land. That was part of God's law. The land stays with the family. And it was wrong to do this. And so he was simply a steward of God's land. And so he refused to sell. But Ahab, he goes home and he pouts like a spoiled little child. And so Jezebel sees him pouting and complaining and moaning that Naboth won't sell him this land. And she calls him a sissy. That's the Hebrew word. No, no I don't. But <laughs> she, she chides him and she decides, you know what, since you're such a wimp, I'll take matters into my own hands. I'll, I'll take care of it, honey, in this condescending way. And she plots to have Naboth murdered in cold blood. And seizes that little scrap of land so her husband can have a vegetable garden. It's an awful story. While he's checking on his vegetables one day, God sends Elijah the prophet to him at Naboth's vineyard, formerly, to confront Ahab. And Elijah promises Ahab, this is in 1 Kings 21:19, that the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your blood. And that was fulfilled. You remember in chapter 22, verse 38, there's a battle scene. He's wounded. His body is slumped in the chariot. It goes all the way back. The, the soldiers take the chariot that's got blood still in the bottom of it, and they go back and they wash it off. At Naboth's vineyard and the dogs come and lick up the blood from the chariot. It's fulfilled to the to the T. But that wasn't all. Elijah also promised to Ahab that all of his descendants would be wiped out. He said anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies on the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There's no escaping the wrath of God on your household, Ahab. They can run, they can hide, it's not going to matter. They're going to get... They're going to be killed. And Jezebel is also doomed. The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. 1 Kings 21, 23. Okay, so that's the background. Now over 12 years have passed. 12 years. And and Ahab is gone. Yes, we saw the fulfillment of that. But the house of Ahab still remains. They're still in charge of Israel. And Jezebel still lives. And she's still spreading Baalism. And she still has a, a, an authoritative role in the nation. But that all comes to a violent and abrupt end in these two chapters this morning. God raises up Jehu, this commander, this military commander, to wipe Ahab's house off the map. And, 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 he, and, to, and what this does is it fulfills God's word spoken through the prophet of Elijah. And so... One more quick comment real quick before we get in. And it's this. It's just on the nature of God's judgment in this section. 
no, we'll see heads rolling. We'll see an unarmed king shot in the back with an arrow and, and, and dogs eating Jezebel. And, and a flawed man like Jehu is the one who's exercising this judgment. He's a messed up guy. Does it have to be this way? Let me just say, it's very difficult to make judgment pleasant. <laughs> that, that, yeah, I guess Ahab's descendants could have just died in their sleep. But, but this, this, it's, it's not that way. In either way, God's word is being fulfilled to the letter. And that's what we need to see. God is in charge over all of this mess. You remember even though, Jesus' death was not sanitary. There's blood. There's agony. That's judgment. He, he, his, and his second coming will make the stuff of second kings look like child's play. And so, so let's get now to the text. Now we, the, the text divides up into three sections very nicely and, and just in terms of reading and understanding the movement. There's the anointing of Jehu in verses 1 to 13 and, and Joe read a good Portion of that. Then there's the avenging of Jehu, which makes up the bulk of this section, where this is where all the killing takes place. And then there's the assessment of Jehu, where God God gives His assessment of Jehu's reign, the good and the bad and the ugly, in verses 28 to 36 of chapter 10. So for our purpose, we're going to work just along two lines of thought this morning. There are there are things in this story that are very different from today. In our context. And I want to identify those real quick. And then there are things that always matter. And we'll see those emerge from our passage. So what are some things that differ here? Three distinctions we need to make. One, we must distinguish between Israel and the nations. And the church, I would say. That, that Israel was, is unique in many ways. There has never been a nation like it. God has placed his name upon the people of Israel. In, in a very unique way. And because of Israel's unique role, there are a lot of implications of that, but they have a unique role. They're the, they're the ones from whom the Messiah would come. Who is, and because the Messiah came and God preserved the, the, God's people, this nation, and, and preserved this line so the Messiah could come, that's how we get in. <laughs> the gospel goes to the nations. But, but, but because of their unique role, one of the things that's true is that God's judgment on them is very severe particularly upon those who lead the nation into wickedness. And that's what we'll see evidence today. We, but I just say, we are not Israel, not as Americans, not as Christians, as a church. We don't drive people out of our nation because they won't believe in Jesus. We, we don't, we, we're not going to start a Jehu ministry at Baraka. Um, sorry, guys, I know some of you would love that, but it's not happening. We're, we're not looking to wipe the nations out. We're, we're, we're willing to go to the ends of the earth, laying down our lives, being killed if necessary, to see the good news go to those who don't have it. So we, we have a love and compassion for the nations. And I'll explain some of those distinctions later on. So we need to distinguish between the unique role that Israel has had and, and where we are today. Second, we have to distinguish between God's special revelation and self-deception. There are a lot of people throughout history who have killed and conquered in the name of God. Um, but it is not of God. Um, many people say God told them to kill. 
And we can know stories of recent and distant history. That is self-deception. There are men in Scripture that God used as instruments of His, uh, for His judgment. And, and, and yet they were appointed and acting on God's special revelation. So people like Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Jehu. And, and we, could go, we could mention others. But if anyone says that they're killing in the name of God, they are liars. They're deceived. God is not on their side in their violence. And so we need to dis- make that distinction. Third, we need to distinguish between the agent's assignment and the agent's execution of that assignment. And this is where the la- closing verses of 10 will really be helpful to us. God appoints Jehu as an agent of judgment, but God does not approve of everything he does in executing that assignment. And we'll, again, we'll see that. That he's full of zeal. Sometimes it's for the Lord. And sometimes it seems to be for himself. Um, He acts at times. Or I'd say at times his own interests overshadow the interests of God. Sometimes he does the right thing but in the wrong way. And so we'll sort that out in the end. But God, God does use him. Broken as he is. You know what? I hate to break this to you. God really doesn't have any sterilized instruments to work with, and this room included. We are all messed up. We are all a mixed bag of good and bad. I mean, even those in Christ. And so God is notorious for using not so good, even wicked people. Think of Judas to accomplish his purposes. And so just because God uses Jehu doesn't mean God approves of what he does and how he carries everything out. Um, and so there are things that differ between kings and today. So we note those. But what I really want you to see this morning in all of this bloodshed is that there are things of tremendous weightiness and significance. Things that should matter to you as they do to God. There are things um, of enormous weight. The significance of them cannot be overestimated. Uh, I, I, there are things... Believe it or not, men, that are more important than March Madness. I know it's hard to, con- hard to conceive for some of you. Not real. I'm being sarcastic. Opening day, baseball, the Masters, or ladies, you, whatever your equivalent is. You, some of you, I know, love those things too. So, um, but, but there are things of tremendous of, of weightiness. And that's what I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning. What are the things that matter that come out of this text? The first thing I would say that we clearly matters is that justice matters. Justice matters. As I said, quoted Psalm 94 and praying Psalm, uh, or Psalm 99, God is an avenger of wrongdoing. He, the king, loves justice. Do you love what God loves? Do, do you love this about God? Do you love God because he's the God of justice? Does, does this scene that we're going to see of Jezebel being thrown out of, out of a window to her death and eaten by dogs, does that make you wince or does it make you worship? Our king loves justice. Second Kings 9, it opens with Elisha carrying out the command that God gave the prophet Elijah right before he was taken up. He was to anoint Jehu, Elisha's Carrying this out. He's anointing Jehu, this military commander, as king of Israel. 
But he doesn't do it himself, as we read a minute ago. He sends one of the sons of the prophets to do this work. We've talked about these sons of the prophets, kind of like young seminary students, uh, just studying under uh, Elijah and Elisha. So this young man does what he's told. He delivers this message to Jehu. Let's just read the message again. Verse 6 of chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel, uh, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. And so he delivers that message. Then the text says he opened the door and he fled, just as Elisha had told him to do. (laughs) It's like throwing the grenade and run. Um, But one of the things we see is that is that God is the one who's behind all of the bloody mess that we're going to see in the next 51 verses. It's him. I'd say he's behind most of it. We'll make some distinctions along the way. Jehu is appointed by God to wield the sword of divine vengeance. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, the psalmist says, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Well, God is sovereignly putting down Jehoram, and he's raising up, lifting up uh, Jehu in his place. God, Jehu is the instrument in fulfilling the plan of Yahweh, but the Lord is the one who's really executing the judgment through him. I may avenge. I will cut off. I will make. That's what the message is from the Lord. It's God's doing. His plan. I say justice always matters to God. He hasn't changed in that. He's immutable in all of his attributes. He's unchanging. He must. He will judge all sin. He, he will avenge all wrongdoing. He offers forgiveness to sinners, but that is not at the expense of his justice. It's not that he's the God of justice in the Old Testament, the God of love in the New Testament. No, the the perfect demonstration of this is what? It's the cross. We sing this, justice and mercy meet and kiss at the cross. That, 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 that the, symbol, the cross is a symbol of mercy and grace because it's an instrument of wrath. And judgment that Jesus stood in our place as our substitute. And, and he bore the just wrath of God in order that we could have God's forgiveness. They're not contradictory. They're both necessary. And so justice matters to God. It should matter to us, church. Now, we are not Jehu's. We are, we are not God's chosen instruments of vengeance on the world. Paul reminds Christians in Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. As it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But we're still to 
to love justice, to do justice? How, how, do, we, how do we value and how, how can we see that justice matters to us as it matters to God? One, I would say you act justly. Act justly in your business dealings, man. Act justly at school students. Um, in, in all of our affairs, we're to do justice. Don't seek unfair advantage over others. We're to, we're to wait for God's justice. This is what it means. Not seeking revenge for wrongs done to us, as Paul says. To, to pray and to work for social justice. Some of you, maybe, this is a way you need to think. There's, there's tremendous work being done in, in places like in India and Africa where uh, Christian attorneys are working through the legal systems because believers, they come to faith in Christ and all their belongings are taken from them. And so it's a good thing to work through the system for justice in those places. And, and, and we have our own versions of that. We should practice church discipline, church, and thankful we do. This is part of our responsibility as God's given it to us. We should also practice forgiveness and reconciliation. And in light of this, to make much of God's justice is to make much of the cross, as I said. Gospel people, they love justice. The cross is a demonstration of that. So God's justice, justice matters. Second thing that really matters that comes out of this text is God's word matters. His word matters tremendously. So the son of the prophet, he anoints Jehu to be king in secret, in private, behind closed doors. But Jehu comes back to his men, the other commanders that are meeting while the battle is going on. And, and they wonder what happened back there. So they ask, verse 11, is all well? What, what did this mad fellow, what did this mad fellow come to you? Why did this mad fellow come to you? Now he may have been socially awkward and kind of disheveled, I don't, I'm not sure, but, but generally prophets were thought to be a little bit on the crazy side of sane. Uh, and they're in good company. Uh, Jesus was accused of being a madman too, as was Paul. Um, but Jehu plays down the event. He, he says in verse 11, you know this fellow in his talk. But they press him for an answer. He say, they say, that's not true. Tell us now. And so then when he tells them this, he tells them, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. And the writer says, then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. <laughs> they give this spontaneous in a sense, secretive coronation for their new king. But what's done in secret soon becomes public. Jehu says, it's time to roll. Mount up the horses. We're going to Jezreel to see the king of Israel and the king of Judah who are gathered there. And so they go. Now, let's just pause. What, what matters in this story? And we're going to see it throughout the passage. What matters is what God says. What God says. God's word is behind everything that happens. God's word is what's shaping and guiding everything in this story. God's word is the catalyst for all of the change that we're going to see in these chapters. Which, it is drastic change. This is one of the most significant events in the history of divided Israel. And you just put yourself in the shoes of, of, of someone in Israel in that day. It's like our government being completely overthrown and overturned in just days. It's, it's drastic change. So there's, there's war going on. They're actively fighting the Syrians. There's political factors at work. There are the opinions of people. And yet what takes precedence over everything is what God says. 
God says. God is exercising his sovereign, governing authority in this text through his word. What's accomplished is done. We see this repeated throughout this passage. In accordance with the word of the Lord. In fulfillment of the word of the Lord. Four times in this section. Let me just say, we, God's word ought to matter more than anything to us. Particularly when, when we're opposed, when we're persecuted, when we're suffering for the sake of righteousness, God's truth needs to matter more than our comfort, more than how people think of us, more than our popularity. God's word matters. It matters to God and it should matter to us. Now, what does it look like when God's word really matters to us? And just give you a few questions to kind of help you think. Uh, Is God's word matter to me as it ought to, to the same degree? Do you spend more time reading your Facebook feed than you spend reading the Bible each day? Which I think the average is people spend 45 minutes a day reading their news feed. Which one can you go a day, which one can you not go a day without checking? Scriptures or or it could be ESPN.com or blogs or whatever, Twitter. If you could squeeze your prayers somehow, turn them into something physical, would they just ooze Scripture? I don't mean that you're just quoting it all the time, but it just, it just oozes Bible. Can you quote more movie lines than Bible verses? Can you navigate the, the guide on your TV? You know, every, you know how everything is and where all the channels are lined up better than you can navigate the Scripture. Someone says, turn to Hosea. You're like, oh, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, what do you know better? Is your instinct to obey what you read and what you hear? Or is it to rationalize what you read and hear from the Scriptures and explain it away and, and, and resist it? Does God's word make regular, uh, regular appearances in your conversations, both with believers and unbelievers? Has God's word been a major factor in the decisions that you've made recently? So just say, we, we need help. We, we need to value the word. We need to put the right, proper value upon the word. And it's enormous. It's far greater than we, when we, than we tend to think. God's word matters. Third thing that matters. Worship matters. Worship matters. Let me summarize what happens when Jehu reaches Jezreel. And we're going to have to summarize a lot. We obviously have a lot of ground to cover. Jehoram, who's king of Israel, he sends two different men to meet this man that's coming toward them on a chariot. And so they see someone riding toward them. Jehu sees this happening. He sends two guys out, one at a time, to go meet Jehu and to ask, and the question they ask in verse 17 and 18 and 19, is it peace? Is it peace? He's probably thinking that this man, this commander is bringing news from the battlefield. Are they winning? Or are they losing? Victory, defeat. So is it peace? Now each time Jehu responds when this messenger comes, he asks them the question, what do you have to do with peace? Each messenger then is told to get behind Jehu and 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 to join him. And so the messengers don't return to the king of Israel, to King Jehoram with any message. They end up staying with Jehu as he continues to make his way to Jezreel. 
Now, after each of these two episodes, there's a watchman who says in verse 20, he reached the last messenger, reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. <laughs> That's like some of you, how you, I can saw some of you come in later and <laughs> driving furiously in here. Uh, this is, this is him. He apparently felt the need for speed and he had a reputation for it, probably from the battlefield. He was an aggressive commander on the battlefield and had a reputation for how he navigated his chariot. But, so, but he can't figure out what's going on. Why, why aren't they coming back? What is, what is happening? So the king decides to go himself to meet Jehu along the way. And they just so happen, as Jehu's coming in, as, as, um, as Jehoram's coming out, they just so happen to meet right at the field of Naboth. Huh. A coincidence, right? And Jehoram asks the same question. He says, is it peace, Jehu? Jehu responds in verse 22, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? He's not coming to bring a report from the battlefield. He's coming to clean house. Now, let's just pause there. Now, everything else that we're going to see in, the, in, the, in these chapters, all of the bloodshed, the God-ordained bloodshed and the not God-ordained bloodshed, it's chiefly about this. The, the whorings refer to the worshiping of other gods. And this language is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. And, and, and since Baal worship involved gross sexual perversion, it's an, it's an apt description for what's taking place. The sorceries are just referring to those cultish pagan practices. And so what I want you to see is don't miss the connection between idolatry and judgment. They're, they're related. God's wrath comes upon God's people because God's worship is given to idols. That's it. God takes worship seriously. Deadly. It's deadly serious, as we'll see. Listen, all of us are worshipers of someone or something. The most important question that you could ever be asked and will have to answer for yourselves is, Who is my God? Who, who will I worship? And, and even as believers, John warns, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, little children, keep yourself from idols. We, we can, we, our hearts are prone to wonder from our, our one true living God, and we worship other gods, the God of approval, the God of comfort, the God of convenience, the God of, of work and control and success and achievement and productivity and and, and notoriety and popularity and leisure and money. And I mean, the list is endless. Gods that we can worship. But God takes worship seriously, church. And we need to as well. We do. Well, all right, we gotta, we got to keep moving. Third, fourth thing that matters is God's suffering saints matter. God's suffering saints matter. Now, we pick up the story, and we're about to see a lot of bloodshed. And we'll have to summarize a lot of this. So you can go back and read if you want the gory details. Um, God is avenging the text says, the blood of his servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. That was the message that, that, um, that Jehu received from the son of the prophet. And, and of course, there, he's avenging the blood of Naboth. So in verse 23, uh, Jehoram tries to flee. He realized what's about to take place. And he, he takes off fleeing from Jehu. Jehu pulls the bowstring, 
boom, hits him right in the back, right between the shoulders, and pierces his heart, and he and kills him. And, and Jehu says in verse 25, he says, Take him and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. And then he quotes the prophecy of Elijah in verse 26 that was given again 12 years prior. But, but this is what I want you to see. Naboth was a nobody to Ahab. He was just in the way. He, he was disposable. Naboth was disposable garbage to Jezebel. But he mattered to God. He's just a common Israelite who worked his vineyard. But he mattered to God. He was faithful to the Lord. God will avenge the blood of his people, church. Look in verse, 20, in verse 27 to 29. The king of Judah, he tries to flee as well. Ahaziah, but he's caught and he's killed. And we don't have time to go into all, all the circumstances. Interesting story. But now why did Jehu kill Ahaziah? Was he a threat to him? Was it because he had married into Ahab's family? Now, the writer doesn't say that it was according to God's word like some of the other killings that we'll see. But the chronicler says, first, Second Chronicles 22.7, that it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come through his visit to Jehoram. To, to, to Jehoram, yes. So he kills Ahaziah. Next up, Jezebel, verses 30 to 37. Now, she decides she's going to go out in style. Um, she hears that Jehu is coming and she gets herself all dolled up. She's going to play the part of the evil queen and she's going to play it well. And so verse 30, she painted her eyes, adorned her head and looked out the window just to wait to see Jehu riding up. She knows she's toast. And so she asked the same question, is it peace? But she asks it to, she insults Jehu by saying, is it peace, Zimri? Murderer of your master. Verse 31. Now I know some of you, most of you don't remember Zimri. But if you go back, this is back in First Kings chapter 16. He was the military commander who took the throne of Elah by force and reigned for one whole week. But he killed to secure the throne. And so he's saying, you Zimri, you murderer of your master. So she's playing the part of this powerful queen, boasting in her arrogance. And yet she's betrayed by two or three of her eunuchs. These are probably people, these men that lost their manhood by her so that they could be slaves of hers. And so they come behind her and they toss her out of the window. And her body hits so hard on the ground that blood splatters, the text says, on the wall and on the horses. And the horses end up trampling all over her body. Verse 32. But Jehu, he doesn't lose his appetite at this sight. text is very explicit. Verse 34, he goes into her palace and he eats and he drinks. He's just demonstrating his reign in the place of this wicked family. It's just kind of like the images of after, after in Iraq with the fall of Saddam Hussein. Have those pictures of American soldiers and Iraqi citizens in the palace in those elaborate palaces of Saddam Hussein, just, you know, eating and leaning against the wall, drinking Gatorade. It's like, he's not in charge anymore. She's done. So this is what's demonstrated here. Well, as an afterthought, he orders for her to be buried, but servants, they go to get her body, and they find that there's really nothing left to bury. Verse 35, when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. 
The dogs had eaten the rest of her. And when they come back to tell Jehu about this, he reminds them of what Elisha prophesied. Verse 36, In Jezreel the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field and the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Naboth's death has been avenged now. Now all that remains is to eliminate Ahab's descendants. And that's what's next on Jehu's agenda. In verses 1 to 17 of 10. There's this unresolved tension. In the story of kings that we've been feeling. I, I realize that that's probably not what's kept you up at night. Over the last weeks. But we're waiting for this day. God told, God told Ahab through Elijah. That your whole family is going to be wiped out. Now we're 12 years later. Most of them are living fine. But 70 sons of the house of Ahab remain dwelling in Samaria, verse 1. And when it's all said and done, what we find is there's a pile of heads. Ahab's sons at the gate of Jezreel. Now again, you'll have to read to figure out all that happened. But in verse 11, so Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests until he left him, none remaining. This is the point. Suffering saints matter to God. The book of Revelation promises that God will avenge the blood of his servants. Evil, wicked, violent men may prosper on earth for a short time, but God will have the last word. Now, dogs may not consume modern day Jezebels like we see in this story every time, but their judgment is just as certain. God will avenge the blood of his persecuted people uh, finally and eventually. The persecuted, and, and listen church, the persecuted church really does exist. I know you're not ignorant of this, but I just need to remind you, brothers and sisters around the world, they're being kidnapped and they're being martyred today. As we, as we meet here in this nice, comfortable room. Um, some are imprisoned and tortured, others are lose their houses and belongings. Others are burned to death. And in all kinds of ways, God's people are being persecuted. I just pulled off one story this morning of a, a young girl in Uganda just recently. She was, she was beaten and disowned. Her, she was, uh, her Muslim father died, and so she was raised as was a tradition in a, by another Muslim man to be raised in Muslim traditions. But what he didn't know when he adopted her is that she had become a Christian a few years prior. And so when he discovered that she was a Christian, he pulled out a club and clubbed her in the face until she was just near death. Recovered in the hospital and, and he said, he basically dropped her off with a, a, a Christian pastor in the community and said, I, I, don't want to hear, I don't want to hear another word about her. I don't want to hear a report how she's doing. I don't care. She's nothing to me. And, and now she's being raised with 17 other kids that had the same kind of experience in a, in, in, by a you know, believing family, a pastor of a church there. And so, I mean, this is, that's one of thousands of stories that we know and could read about. And for every one we know about, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands we know nothing of. It's, it's everywhere. We're, there are more Christians being persecuted today than at any other time in human history, statistically. And so... Uh, we don't know about them all, but God does. He knows every single one. 
In, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, those who have been slain for the word of God and for bearing witness of, of him, they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And what are they told? They say, rest, wait, verse 11. And then in Revelation 19, verse 2, we read, his judgments are just, for he has avenged on her, on her the blood of his servants. God knows his saints. God knows who killed them. A sure and severe judgment is coming. Now, more than the death of the wicked, we desire their salvation, don't we, brothers and sisters? I hope, even of our enemies, our fiercest enemies. That, that is true. But if they refuse to embrace the Christ whom they've persecuted, then they will receive the, the eternal reward for their sin. And that is the fierce wrath of God. God takes seriously the blood of his suffering servants. Fourth, fifth thing that matters. Two more. Your heart matters. Your heart matters. So back to the story. Jehu makes his way to Samaria to, to finish the task of wiping out Ahab's descendants. And he'll end up wiping out all the Baal worshippers as well. But along the way, he has these a couple of, of encounters along the way. And, and so in these verses, we begin to shed some light on the problem that still exists in Jehu's heart. After all is said and done, the final analysis of Jehu will be this. In verse 31, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He didn't follow God with all his heart. It's not just the external reform of the nation that mattered to God. It's the internal reform of the heart that matters to God. He's not a, God's not interested in you just kind of cleaning your, your life up on the outside and, and having an appearance and, and doing some things well. He's a man, that person's really zealous for God. No, he wants your heart to be his. And Jehu's heart was not holy God's. Jehu's zeal was for the, for the Lord. It was contaminated by what seems to be a zeal for himself, for his own gain. So he meets Ahaziah's. This is a king of Judah. He meets his relatives along the way to Samaria in verse 12 and 13. And they're apparently completely ignorant of all that's transpired in the last few days. They don't, they don't know what's taking place. Again, there's no internet. There's no radio, those kinds of things. So they don't know what's going on. But he mercilessly slaughtered 42 of them. Without any stated reason. Now, I think that these are probably the, 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 the murders that, for which Hosea condemns the, the killing in, in Jezreel in Hosea 1, 4 to 5. Because uh, the, the prophecies of Elijah and Elisha, they, they say nothing of killing off David's descendants. The, the line of Judah. But then he meets a new character, Je, Jehonadab, in verse 15. And he... Jehonadab and his relatives, they, they're apparently fanatical supporters of, uh, of Yahweh. And they, were, they lived ascetic lives. We see this in Jeremiah 35, 6 and 7. And they would have opposed everything that Ahab's house valued. And so Jehu tells him, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Well, that is just the kind of invitation a guy like this wants. He says, ah, I'm on board with that. And, and we'll consider this zeal in a moment, but he, he's basically the white, the, the far, far right wing of Israel. And so he's, he secured the support of that, of him, 
And the writer tells us that Jehu proceeded to wipe out the remaining group of Ahab's house in Samaria. So, he, And this was done, verse 17, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. So it seems that the death of Ahaziah's descendants may be kind of questionable. But here, this is very appropriate. He's continuing to wipe out Ahab's house. But he's not finished. He will finish what Elijah started in, in eliminating the prophets of Baal and the worshipers of Baal. He, he, he tricks all of the Baal priests and all of the Baal worshipers into coming to the temple for a great sacrifice, not knowing that they will be that sacrifice. But he's, he pretends to be a Baal worshiper himself. He tells them in verse 18, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. So he puts on this show and he uses cunning, the text says, to, to get them there. And, and he threatens to kill them if they don't show up. But ironically, they're going to be killed because they show up. Um, so while everyone's inside offering these wicked sacrifices to this false god, Baal, he, he orders snipers, basically, to surround the temple. And on his order, they execute every single one of the Baal worshippers. And he, and, and he kills everybody. The sacred stone of Baal is destroyed. The temple itself is leveled. To complete the demolition, the, the temple of Baal is turned into a latrine. Verse 27, a toilet. Now, should we commend Jehu for this purging? Um, it, it was not part of the prophetic mandate here, but we, we think of Deuteronomy 13, and we can make a biblical argument in defense of this like we did when 1 Kings 18. But, but, but even, that aside, is that why Jehu did this? I mean, to be honest, we don't know for certain. But I tend to agree with one commentator who says, wiping out the Baal cult had more to do with Jehu's zeal for Jehu than his zeal for Yahweh. Now, why would we say that? Well, because if he had done this out of pure zeal for the Lord, then we wouldn't find what we read in verses 28 and 29. And it's this, is thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that, are in, that were in Bethel and Dan. He, he eliminates one form of idolatry, but he keeps another one propped up and supports it. He's, he, it's not true, thorough, God-centered reformation. And so, under his leadership, Israel basically returns to how they were before Ahab. But they don't return fully to the Lord. He didn't, he didn't serve the Lord with his whole heart. And so, with, with the result of all of his successes and failures over his 28-year reign, verse 32, In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, one by one, one part after another began to fall away. That's just coming unraveled. God wasn't pleased. I just say then, a little zeal or a lot of zeal is not enough with God. God wants undivided hearts. You, what do we make of Jehu's zeal here? We could maybe call it twisted zeal because it's good, it's bad. It's, he's double-minded like James speaks of. He's wiping out the prophets of Baal. Then he's bowing down to the golden calves of Dan. He's zealous for God and he's zealous for personal gain. So I just say there's a warning for us to examine our own hearts here. What are some modern examples of this kind of twisted zeal that we might see? Well, you can be zealous for religion, but you've never really experienced regeneration. You've never been born again. 
You can be zealous to attend worship gatherings and and you take notes and you've got everything and you're like a professional uh, gatherer. And yet, you go home, you're addicted to pornography. You're zealous for ministry, doing things in the church, but you have really a zeal to be known by others and admired by others and thanked by people. You're zealous for morality, and yet you turn, you, you turn into a legalistic Pharisee who knows nothing of the grace of God in Christ. You're zealous for truth, but you have a hatred toward those who disagree with you. You're zealous to preach. You're getting personal. But, but you're really driven to please people or to become known as a good preacher. You're busy with churchy things, but there's real no devotion to Christ. You're, you're zealous for social causes, but you don't love Jesus. Paul says that there are those who have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. We can, can give evidence that. Jehu says, come see my zeal. The Lord says, let me examine your heart. That heart the heart really matters to God. One more thing that matters, and we have to be quick here. The coming of Christ matters, and we can't work this out too much. But let me just say this. There, we, we have to say, and we've said this all along, Jesus is far better than Jehu. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus walked over a carpet of garments on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus cleansed the temple. Jesus' zeal for the house of God consumed him, John says. Jesus was faithful and just, the only faithful and just Israelite who never sinned. He laid down his life. He bore the judgment of God on our behalf, making it possible for us to escape the wrath of God. And he's coming again to judge the earth. At his first coming, he taught us and showed us how to love our enemies and so by following his teaching, by, by emulating his example, by relying upon the Spirit's power, by, by entrusting him to be the final judge when it's all said and done, we don't have to live with this constant anger at people who've wronged us. We can be free from that. And, and Christ, the gospel gives us that hope and that freedom. We can wait on Christ to judge. We can live, as Paul says, when reviled, we bless when persecuted, we endure. You know, the, the, the certainty that Christ is coming, it frees us, liberates us to love, to lay down our lives for the world, even our enemies. And I'm not implying that the guilty shouldn't receive their just consequences. I talk about civil matter, civil authority and all of that. That's another message. But, but Jehu was God's judge, agent of judgment, but he was imperfect. But the perfect judge is coming. He is the conquering king. And when he comes, it will be a scene again far more frightening than anything we see in Second Kings. Revelation 19, and we'll close with this. It just gives us this awe-inspiring picture of our king. Revelation 19, turn there with me and let's, we'll close and sing. And we'll behold our God. We'll sing and behold our great and glorious king together. That none can compare to him. Revelation 19, verse 11 why don't you go ahead and stand with me and we'll read and this will, this will close our, our time. Revelation 19. 
Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we would. I pray that everybody here today knows this king. But I am. Assuming that there are probably some who don't. And I pray, Father, that um, in light of the fact that that you are coming and you will judge God, that there would be people even today who have a right fear of you that leads to repentance, God, and faith in Jesus Christ. That they would bow and believe in Jesus Christ who took their sin, who bore their punishment who absorbed the wrath for their sin that they deserved on the cross, and yet who rose and lives and reigns and offers forgiveness to all who trust in Him. I pray that if there's somebody here who doesn't know Jesus yet, that they will believe today. And I I pray that we'll all be ready to see Him. We say with John, Lord, come, come, Lord Jesus, come. But until you come, Lord, God, Help us not to squander our days away just frittering around with trivial things, but to to give ourselves to this work of seeing Jesus preached and proclaimed and believed upon in the world, Lord. Help us to care about people around us who don't know Christ and to care about people in this world who persecute and, and uh, who persecute Christ. God, may we give our lives for the furtherance of your gospel. That there would be more worshipers around your throne and bowing and rejoicing in the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.